36 years ago, I was um, <clears throat> in the Navy, about a year out of high school, didn't know the Lord, and um, had been dating a girl for quite some time, and uh, spent a lot of time with her family, and she had shared the gospel with me, and her family had shared the gospel through a lot of means, one through words, but mostly through action. Uh, I knew their family pretty well. And so um, she was home from college, and I took leave to come home from the Navy to spend time with her. I drove home to ask her, how do you become a Christian? Because I didn't know the answer to that. And um, <clears throat> it had been, the Lord had been doing his thing in my soul. You know what it's like when you came to know the Lord. You can't sleep, you can't stop thinking about it, but you can't make sense of it, you try to understand it. And so I came home to ask her how to become a Christian. And I called her and I said, I heard you came home from college. And I, I, I had something I want to talk to you about. And she said, I have something I want to talk to you about too. And I said, well, you go first. And she broke up with me. <clears throat> so then she said, what do you want to talk about? And it's like, well, it's not important. <laughs> so I, I left and drove back to the uh, Navy base, cried all the way back, four and a half hours, stopped and talked to my mom and dad on the way. I just sobbed, poured my heart out to them. And got back, and I didn't know what to do. Um, so I did the smart thing. I went and got drunk every night. You know, that's what sailors do, right? So toward the end of the week, I called her dad. And I said, uh, this is why I actually came down last week, and I don't know the answer to the question. And he said, can you come back? And I said, sure. So I went back and uh, spent the weekend. My parents didn't know I was even in town. I spent the weekend in their home. She had gone back to college by now, and uh, her father led me to the Lord. Uh, he's here today. Tom and Pat, would you stand up? <clears throat> Two of the dearest people in my life. You can blame him. <laughs> he started something 36 years ago, which culminated in you asking me to become your pastor. So if you have any problems, have a conversation with him, not me. <laughs> and then for the next year... Um, being in the Navy, we didn't have internet, we didn't have those kinds of things, cell phones, and so he wrote me letters regularly. One of my very few regrets in life is I wish I had kept them. And he wrote me letters, and he just very gently talked to me about the scriptures. And so every couple of weeks, I'd get a letter from him wherever I was, and I would um, read it. And that was the beginning of my very deep and passionate love for this book right here. I don't even know if you realized you were doing it, but you were forging in new ground in my life, things I had never thought about. And that went on. Uh, that began to grow, and it grew and grew and grew and culminated in me getting a Ph.D. in New Testament studies, and I love it, and that's not even enough. I still study you walk in my office, you'll see six or seven books laying on my off my desk that I'm reading today. I do read seven books at a time because I get bored. ADHD, you know, it can only handle a little bit at a time. So I read one, put it down, and read another. I've learned the trick is not to read two that are along the same lines because then I get confused. So I read a lot. So, Tom, thank you. It's good to have you here. And I promise not to embarrass his other daughter, Christy, sitting here, so I won't say a word about Christy and her family. <laughs> Christy, is good to have you here as well. Well, we are in a series in Ephesians, so if you uh, want to pull out your Bibles, there's probably one there, or pull out your electronic device or your tablet or laptop or whatever you have, and I don't care as long as you can get to the Bible, and we're, we're looking in Ephesians, and we titled this, uh, Waking the Dead. What happens when the dead wake up? And today, I want to make a basic point. I want to argue a point all the way through the morning 
that you cannot really understand what it means to be dead until you've been brought to life. Or let me say it a different way. You can't understand reality, true reality as God sees it, until you've been brought to life. It's just not possible. The dead, a dead person can't understand reality. It's just the way the world works. And so we're going to look at this passage and we're going to talk about what happens. What is it like when you were dead, first of all? I think many of you can remember back. Some of you, that's been an awful long time ago. You'll have to kind of, you know, clear the cobwebs and go deep to remember what it was like before you turned to Christ. And so we have argued thus far that when a person wakes up from the dead, they begin to move toward people different than themselves. In Ephesians 1, remember that I argued that the pronouns there, praise be to the God and Father, verse 3, of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he's arguing there as a Jew, okay? And the reason why I argued that is because in chapter 2, verse 11, it says, therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, so he identifies who the you are as Gentiles. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. So Paul starts in chapter 1 in a very typical Jewish way, but tongue-in-cheek for Paul. And he starts arguing a Jewish rhetoric that the Jews and the Gentiles had heard all along. At this time in world history, the Jews and Gentiles were like this. They were estranged from one another, especially in the areas of spiritual, religious matters. They had very little in common. They didn't respect each other. And so Paul starts arguing, as a typical Jew would argue, we are the ones that received all the blessings. Too bad for you Gentiles. And then, surprise, surprise, in verse 13, he says, and you also were included in Christ when you believed in Jesus. That was the surprise and redemptive history. It's right there on the page. We Jews had all the blessings. Too bad for you. But guess what? That's not the end. And you also were included in those blessings. And so his very first thing he does is begins to break down this barrier between Jews and Gentiles by reaching across the aisle, so to speak, and saying, welcome. When a person wakes up from the dead, they begin to reach out to people different from themselves. And then in verse 15, his prayer, I argued here that when a person wakes up from the dead, they begin to be a blessing to the nations. Verse 15, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all his people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in all of my prayers. Remember, we looked at Romans 1 and 16, the beginning and the end of Romans, where he said, my calling is to go to the Gentiles, to all the nations, and that's basically the word for Gentiles, all the nations, to tell them about the risen Lord Jesus. This was a fulfillment of the promise made way back to Abraham in Genesis 12. Through you, I will bless all the nations. Remember the, the uh, metaphor that I used? Here's God, and he created a kaleidoscope of nations, and he chose one. He elected one. That's why I said don't be afraid of that concept of election. We often frame it in a very different way than I think the Bible frames it. He elected one to go get the rest. So he selected Abraham to go get the rest of the nations. Abraham's journey down, if you, if you trace his journey in the Bible and on a map, you will find that everywhere he went, he built an altar, an altar and began to proclaim the name of Yahweh to, those, to the godless pagans around him. And Paul, report, he brings that up in both Romans and Galatians at how faithful Abraham was. Everywhere Abraham went, he told, uh, he told them about the one true living God. 
Back in 1976, in Damascus, Syria, outside of that, in a field, a farmer was plowing this uh, in his field with a hand plow, and he hits up against something, and he pulls up this obelisk, this this kind of this uh, statuette or idol, and he took it into the local pub that night, and he's sitting there with his buddies, and uh, they're looking at it. They have no idea what they're looking at. And sitting at the table next to them was a paleontologist. He glances over and immediately recognizes that there was a language not previously known on the earth uh, in today's world. He, he saw what it was, and he went over and negotiated and purchased it from them, took it back, and come to find out, we had discovered a lost civilization called Ebla, E-B-L-A. You can Google it, look it up, all kinds of history. Fascinating story. So they got permission, and they dug down. And when they dug down beneath the field, they dug right smack into the center of the palace. And what they found in the palace were 20,000 clay tablets dating back to 2nd millennium B.C. That's the time of Abraham. Now, up until this time, there was a big debate in Christianity and scholarship about whether uh, the books of the Old Testament were valid, real, authentic, or whether they're forgeries. And the, uh, the pendulum was swinging that they're written late, that uh, we have no record that the five cities on the plain, for instance, in Genesis 10 and 11 are mentioned anywhere. We have no mention that the name of God ever appears. So these are all late documents. They're not really what they describe to be. In this library, what's fascinating is there's 20,000 clay volumes in the library still hung in the order in which they were left. Well, the reason why this is amazing is clay tablets didn't survive because what happens to clay over time? It, it crumbles. We have very few libraries. And when the, whoever it was that sacked this palace burned the palace to the ground, the temperature reached a high enough temperature that it high-fired the clay tablets and they withstood the, ste- the test of 3,000 plus years. In these clay tablets, they found the name Yahweh, which disproved all the theories. They also found the name of the five cities on the plain mentioned in the exact sequence and order as we find in Genesis. How on earth would they have known about that? Well, where they discovered it is right on the map where Abraham went. He proclaimed the name of Yahweh everywhere he went. And God said, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So Paul felt that calling by God to be the Gentile, the apostle to the Gentiles. And so now he sees this Gentile church here, and their faith in the Lord Jesus is real, and their love for all his people is growing, and he has recognized that the promise to Abraham is being fulfilled. No wonder, he says, ever since I heard about your faith, I have not stopped jumping up and down with excitement. It's happening. Redemptive history is unfolding right in front of our eyes, right here. So when a person wakes from the dead, they become a blessing to the nations. That was the basic charge to Abraham. So I asked the question last week, are we a blessing to the nations? We've got a lot of nations represented right here in Summit County, don't we? Are we a blessing to them? So today in Ephesians 2, we're going to look at it, and there's going to be some movement here because we're going to look at the old condition where you found yourselves before Christ in the first three verses, and then the new position, what does it mean to be alive? Uh, the old condition, you're dead to God, and the new position, you're alive in Christ. Got to get that right. One time I was baptizing, that reminds me of something, when I was in Germany as a missionary, I was baptizing, and so I'm a young, young minister, okay? And uh, the way I baptize is, you know, I put somebody in the water, dead to sin, bring them up alive to Christ. And this has nothing to do with the story about Ephesians, by the way. But... Uh, 
So I was getting up there, and I was practicing. I had a line of soldiers that I led to the Lord, and they're, they're going to get baptized. And so one of the guys, the first guy up there, I said, I want you to get baptized first, and then your wife, wife will get baptized after you. That way you can stand there and hold a towel, and if you're cold, I don't care because you're a soldier. He said, no, no. She said, no, no, no. I want to be baptized first. It's probably crude. You shouldn't say this in church, but it's a way like this sometimes. And I said, no, no, no. I want your husband to be baptized. She says, no, he's going to pee in the water. <laughs> he's not going to pee in the water. Okay? Yes, he is. So we get up there, and, and, this, and the chapel is packed. I mean, these guys invited all their soldiers from all their units. And so he's climbing in the water, and he leans over, and he goes, I'm going to pee in the water. <laughs> now, I'm, remember, I'm really pretty new here. I've just been ordained like a year before. So I'm kind of, my cage is a little rattled. And so I stick him in the water. I put him in the water. I said, dead to Christ. No, wait. Wait. That's not right. So I'm holding him underwater while I'm trying to remember what my theology is. <laughs> And I said, no, 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 dead to sin. And he thought I was doing this because of what he had said, right? So I pulled him up. He's going, <laughs> alive in Christ. The Lutheran chaplain came up to me later, and he says, you know, he goes, uh, according to Romans 5, we actually did die with Christ in Romans 6. I just never actually have heard it used that way. <laughs> so, so the truth is our old condition is we are dead to God and dead in sin. Those are the first three verses, and we have been ala made alive in Christ. And so let's take a moment and look at this. Verse, chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Okay, pause. Paul reverses his argument. In chapter 1, he goes, we received all the blessings. And guess what? I'm sorry that you're Gentiles. But then he surprises everyone and says, you were included in that. And now he reverses it. He said, as for you, Gentiles, you were dead and your transgressions and sins. And then in verse 3, here's the surprise. All of us, all of us also, us Jews, lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, like the rest of you, we too are deserving of wrath. And so there's that step across the aisle again. You guys were pagans. Guess what? So were we. You see how he's bringing them together? These two estranged groups very slowly? So, everyone is spiritually dead. This is the condition of all of humanity. Romans 5, verse 12 said, Through one man, sin entered into the world, and with sin, death. Therefore, all died. All died. And then he says something very fascinating in Romans 7. What's, in Romans 7, 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. If there's no law, you can't break the law. You got it? We're moving into deep waters here. This is tough. This is tough to talk about, but it is true. God is complicit in our sin. 
The moment he gave the commandment, do not eat of this tree, he became the catalyst, God did, that caused sin to occur. Ironically, death finds its origin in God because God decreed that death would be the ultimate penalty for disobedience to his revealed commands. Now just think about that. Death finds its origin ultimately in God. And God doesn't shy away from that. He doesn't shirk away from that responsibility. This means that death is under the sovereign will, power, and control of God. He has absolute control over it. But the real question is, what is spiritual death? What is it? We, um, we use a lot of terms in the church. I've discovered as time goes by that uh, less and less are we able to define them. That's not a criticism against you. That's actually a criticism against me and all the other pastors. We have really not done our work to help you understand what is justification, what is sanctification, what is holiness, what do all those things mean? What does it really mean? And so part of my task here, you've seen me enough now for four months, is to untangle some of these words and to give you a way to understand them. So what is spiritual death? Well, at one level, it is separation from us and God. I think all of you got that and you grasp it. That doesn't really answer the question, so what? What does it really mean? I think at another level, and this is difficult to hear, so work with me here. Walk this road. It means that the ability to act or do good things is absent. We do not have the capacity to do good works. Or let me say it another word, another way. None of the works and deeds that we do as a non-Christian is good. I'm going to read to you some passages here. You can turn if you want, but uh, just sit and listen. One is Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64, verse 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean. That's all of us. Get the inclusive nature? All of us. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. All of them. Or Proverbs. You go back to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 12. I love the opening statement in the verse. Chapter 12, verse 10. The righteous care for the needs of their animals. The righteous care for the needs of their animals. All of creation is awaiting redemption, Paul says, including our animals. And the righteous care for their animals. They do a good job. But the kindest acts of the wicked are cruel. The kindest acts of the wicked are cruel. Or we go back even further to Psalms. I'm going to read to you Psalm 14, the first three verses. This is quoted almost entirely by Paul in Romans. Romans 14. Fools say in their hearts, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. Let me say that again. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's how God views the world. Listen to the Romans version of it. It's in Romans 3. This is Paul. Paul starts off, uh, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel in chapter 1. You think he'd begin to explain what the gospel is, but he doesn't. He does his turn, 
and goes right into the total depravity, the failure, the brokenness of this entire creation and every one of us because he wants you to get a clear picture of what brokenness truly looks like. Uh, remember, I've been arguing that Romans is a book, first and foremost, about being a blessing to the nations. And one of the ways that we are a blessing to the nations is to really grasp the reality of the world in which we live. His conclusion after going through that is this in Romans 3. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. I know this is difficult. Mark and I talked for five or six times this week. We have several hours on just talking this through, how to lay this out in front of you. But it is a spiritual reality. When you are spiritually dead, you are incapable of doing any good deed. Who's the one that assigns value to good deeds? God. Ultimately. It doesn't matter what we think. It's his world. It's his creation. And when God looks down, what does he see? No one who does good. No one. To really understand death, it requires that we wake up. You have to be alive to understand death. I'm going to show you a video, and while they're queuing it up, let me tell you a little bit about the story. It's a, it's a story out of the movie Matrix. How many of you have not seen the movie Matrix? Let me see. Okay, a few hands. Matrix is a movie that's now 10 years old, something like that. It was, um, it was written by two brothers who are not Christians, and they asked them, when you, uh, where'd you get this story? It's an amazing story of the Matrix. And they said, uh, right out of the Bible, it's the best science fiction book ever written. And it's the story of a people that are, um, they, they think they're living in one world, but the truth is they're not. Through manipulation, they have a computer controlling their minds and fabricating what we call the matrix, a world in which they live, but that's not the true world in which they live. Now think about the story of the Bible. That is the story of the Bible. I, I live in a world with three dimensions and five senses, don't I? And yet... Uh, but almost everything in here is talking about the other world I live in that's very spiritual. I fight a battle in a spiritual world. I live in a spiritual world. Paul's getting ready to say we've been raised with Christ and we're seated at the right hand of the Father. How's that possible? I'm here standing here with you. How am I seated right now at the right hand of the Father? We live in two worlds. And how in the world does God communicate to us this other world that we coexist in? That's the story of the Matrix. And this scene, particular scene, a young man that they chose, they're offering him the chance to wake up and see reality for what it truly is. And he takes it. Watch the scene. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth. Nothing more. 
online. Almost. Time is always against us. Please, take a seat there. you took as part of a trace program. It's designed to disrupt your input-output carrier signal so we can pinpoint your location. What does that mean? It means buckle your seatbelt, Dorothy, because Candace is going bye-bye. dream, Neo, that you were so sure was real. What if you were unable to wake from that dream? How would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world? This can be what? Be real? It's going into replication. Hey, Puff, it's still nothing. Let's go. Let's go. Tank, we're going to need a signal soon. Got a fibrillation. APOC, location. Targeting almost there. He's going into arrest. Lock, I got him. Now, Tank, now. He's very comfortable in his world, which is uh, fabricated, does not represent true reality, let me put it that way. And when he wakes up, uh, he's no longer sitting in the chair, he's found himself as a human generator 
And as he looks out, the last scene is he sees thousands and thousands of humans. Uh, what I used to do in the classroom was have my students go through and identify all the biblical references. I think I found like 16 to 19 direct references, quotes from Romans itself. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. The Bible uses very graphic imagery to capture what, what, what the world is really like, what true spiritual reality is like, how the world is viewed from God's eyes. And I already gave you the first point. There's no one good, not even one. When God looks out, he sees a six billion corpses. And then uh, Tom leads me to the Lord, and I rise up alive. And Dave turns to the Lord, and there's another one that comes alive. Juliet turns to the Lord, and there's another one that comes alive. In Ezekiel 37, as part of the New Covenant, God says to Ezekiel, what do you see, son of man? And he says, I see this valley full of dry, dead bones. And he said, right. Now, prophesy to the breath. Breathe on this. This is what happens when the Spirit comes. <sighs> Sinews begin to form, and this, all these people begin to rise up and become alive. That is the biblical picture. These, these brothers have got it right, even if they don't believe it. And so what happens? So what is it like when the dead wake up? I just have some thoughts. Number one, there is a deeper understanding of how sinful and broken we truly are. It's hard to grasp how sinful we are until we've been given life. You know your own hearts. You've been given a new heart under a new covenant. I don't have to ask you. I don't have to prove it to you. You already know how broken you are. Every one of us at some level. Yes, we lust. Yes, we covet. Yes, we lie. Yes, we cheat. We do. Yes, we have thoughts that are not completely righteous. And we long for the day when that's no longer true, don't we? We long for the day when the sin nature is completely eradicated. Next, there is a growing and deep awareness of the brokenness of the world around us. You can't truly see the brokenness of the world until you've been brought to life. One of the things we do up here is we're going to be doing it in a few minutes when we have communion is pray together. And um, uh, brokenness isn't the same as sin. It, it takes its form in illness, in death, in misfortune, in all kinds of things. That's what depravity means. And so we see all of us up here praying. When you come and ask us for prayer, we get a glimpse into this world, our congregation, of how broken it is. Don't, do not be deceived when you look at the world around you. Do not be deceived. There is a dawning reality of the hopelessness that we find without Christ because we can finally see the truth. True spiritual reality, our eyes are open and we see it. But don't despair. There's also a lifting of the spirit and a sense of joy as we finally see the truth of what Christ has done. We finally grasp it. I never will forget the joy when Tom explained how to accept the Lord. What does that mean? I never will forget the joy uh, that went, went back to my Navy base and everything changed. Everything changed from that day on. Everything. Nothing was the same. This should lead us to incredible sympathy and empathy for those around us who are still spiritually dead. They cannot see the world as you see the world. That's the biblical story. Now listen to the rest of it. Verse 4. But because of his great love for us, 
wow, what a way, great way to start the solution to the problem. He didn't say because of something you've done, but because of God's great love for us. Because of that, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in these transgressions. It is by grace that we have been saved. It's by God's grace. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that, by the way, this is the only place I know of, I may be wrong, it's the only place I've been able to find that tells us why God saved us. It wasn't so that we would praise Him. He didn't need our praise. It wasn't for glory. He didn't need glory. It wasn't for any of that. It wasn't for anything He got out of it. He had everything. He was complete in Himself without us. So why did He save us? In order that, verse 7, in the coming ages, or these ages that are descending upon us right now, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. He saved you so he could bless you. And isn't that the heart of every healthy parent and grandparent? To bless others? That's what we were made for, to be a blessing to people. And it starts with God. He saved us so that he could bless us for eternity. And here's the first example, the first installment of that grace. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works. There it is. So that no one could boast. No works involved. He birthed you out of deep love, out of incredible mercy and grace. He rescued you from a lost, broken world. So he could bless you. You became one of the chosen ones. He elected you. Why? Now you have a choice. What are you going to do with it? Look at the next verse. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That's why. That's your choice. You have a choice. Sometimes we get caught up in the theological debate of whether... We, we had a choice in salvation and all that stuff. Forget all that. Whatever you believe about that, you certainly have a free will from the day you're saved. What are you going to do with it? That's the question. You have a choice. I wake up almost every morning, not every morning. I started this kind of this discipline 15 years ago, and I think today's a treasure hunt. That's how I view the world. It's a treasure hunt because God has already prepared good works my job is to stumble over the gold nugget so I can find it. You'll have opportunities all day long, every day. So when you go out into your workplace, when you get up and you start preparing your children for school, when you go to school, if you're a student and you start to study, do you with intentionality say, today is a day where I have a privilege of reflecting God's, God's glory to a lost and dying world, a very broken world, a world like this, they can't see reality, but I can, and I can help them with that. And whatever I do, if I do it well, it reflects the glory of the Lord. Do you start the day that way? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Thank you for your great passion for us. Thank you for your great mercy. Thanks for saving us. Thanks for giving us opportunities, Lord, to uh, share your grace with those around us. The ushers are going to come take the offering. And let me just say a simple word. Um, on behalf of the elder staff, our pastors, we're just grateful for what you give. The Lord somehow makes it work, and we're grateful. In India, 
or Nepal, when I go overseas, I love the offerings there. It's different than ours because they all come forward and they, uh, they, don't, they don't have money, so they don't give money. They carry these big metal things. And when they walk down the aisle, people dump rice in. That's how they take care of their poor. And so when they get down here, but they're so full, they set it down. And they all stand up and sing and praise God that God has blessed the church. I just want to say how grateful we are for you. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this offering that we are about to receive. Thank you for the hearts of these people and for working in them to give whatever you want us to have. We promise to use it wisely. In Jesus' name, amen.